Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. A harrowing, but ultimately uplifting story on the podcast this week. Really an incredible story from a woman named Allison Wright, and you'll hear it soon. Uh, first, though, uh, your voicemails. So uh, here's my usual caveat. I'm not a meditation teacher. I'm not a mental health expert. I'm just a reporter uh, and medita- rank-and-file meditator, and uh, I haven't heard these questions in advance, so I just do my best to answer them based on whatever pops into my head. So here we go. Hi, Dan. This is Linda. I'm calling because the news of the last few days about these children being detained in camps um, has has me so desperately sad. And I'm finding that I want to find some kind of refuge in my meditation practice. But... I'm also finding that I'm almost avoiding meditating because then I have to sit down and let all these pictures and sounds of the children crying um, really sink in. And I, I want to feel them. I want to be there so that I'm not avoiding them. But I just wonder about how you or other people are dealing with what's happening right now in our country and how it affects your meditation practice. Thanks so much for all you do. I'm, I'm really asking you because this podcast and the app have really created a, a virtual meditation community for me, and so it means a lot to hear from you and to feel like I'm part of something. So thanks so much for everything. Thank you, Linda. It means a lot to me to hear you say those kind words at, at the end there. I appreciate it. So l- before I answer this, let me be clear. Uh, um, job number one for me is I'm a journalist. Well, job number one is I'm a daddy but um, and, and husband. But professionally speaking, job number one is I'm a journalist. So I really don't take sides here in, in the epic political battles we're living through in, in the country right now. Um, but th- that being said, if if what's happening in the news is bothering you uh, deeply, troubling you, either because you're worried about what the president is doing or because you're worried that you th- believe the president's being unfairly attacked, um, I do think meditation can be useful. I don't think it's a panacea, but I do think it can be useful. Um, I understand you, Linda, when you say a... You're looking for a refuge, um, some sort of, you know, I don't know if you meant this specifically, but some sort of bubble bath, some sort of escape. Um, and B, that you are worried about meditating because it may turn out to be the opposite, which is uh, you might have to come face to face with all of the sadness or anger or whatever it is you're feeling. Um, but I would argue that you should um, kind of swat away both of those uh, issues. One is um, I, I don't think it's going to be some sort of magical escape, uh, nor do I think it should be because that's not the purpose in my view and in my experience. And on the other hand, I would also say that that uh, while those fears are warranted, it may actually turn out to be tough to meditate while you're experiencing difficult emotions. I would argue that it's better to experience them full, you know, head on, face first, 
rather than let them lurk in uh, the shadows uh, of your psyche and control you blindly. Um, so to me, the sort of only real choice, while I understand your qualms, well, I think the only real choice once you consider it is to go for it in meditation because you uh, you have – you know, what is the benefit of this? It's not that it's going to be a bubble bath. It may be a rough ride. The benefit is that once you face things fully, once you see things clearly, uh, you're less yanked around by these difficult emotions. And, uh, you know, I say this all the time. I, I think we all need to hear it millions and millions of times because that that's the point or one of the points of, of meditating um, in in my view and, and in my experience. Um so I would say definitely meditate. Don't shy away from it, even though I think it's natural to want to shy away from it. But also don't, you know, have realistic expectations about what it can do. And I think so anybody who's struggling in this current political environment, and I think that's many, if not most of us, I think meditation is a great way to um, see clearly whatever's churning within you so that you aren't so yanked around by it. Um, and that I think will make you uh, a more successful human being, by which I don't mean like professionally successful. I mean just less miserable, happier, high, more highly functioning human being. But I also think, you know, in terms of your own inner weather, but I also think it'll make you a better citizen in that you're less likely to um, spew needless vitriol on social media or just to spend too much time in, on social media at all. Uh, and maybe to be able to have sane, reasonable discussions with people with whom you disagree. So, um, yeah. And one last thing. Let me just give a uh, – I don't know if I want to call this a plug but uh, because it's not a plug per se, but it's just a, a heads up. Uh, there's a group I went out and did a story on recently. The story has not aired, but uh, I spent some time with a group called Better Angels, um, and they are – uh, doing very interesting work, very small group at this point, but they basically uh, create these uh, get-togethers for reds and blues. Uh, and um, it was the program was designed by a, a, a marriage counselor um, who's a really smart and interesting person. And um, the just to back up for a second, the whole organization is fifty-fifty. You know, right down to their board of directors, it's half red, half blue. The founders. One red, one blue, and this guy uh, who designed uh, the programming again is a as a marriage therapist. And his thesis, and I think there's something to this, is that we have a rocky marriage in America right now, and that some of the precepts of uh, marriage counseling can be useful in creating healthy dialogue between the two sides. And I was really, um, I was uh, really impressed by what I saw um, in spending time with uh, – I went to the National Convention um, of Better Angels and it had uh, people who were participating in these groups that get together all over the country. Um, uh, it had, they, they brought them all together in Virginia and all, you know, all, lots of reds and lots of blues and um, I was just listening to their conversations and the, watching the way in which they structure the conversations is very, very interesting. And so I would say to people who are looking for a constructive way to deal with uh, our current tumult um, that this is one thing to look at. Um, uh, this group. Go to their website and see if they're having meetings near you. And that's the f the final thing I'll say here, and this is a, a bit of advice I've stolen from Sharon Salzberg, the great meditation teacher, which is that 
better than, and I think meditation helps get you to what I'm about to say or what, she, what I'm about to steal from her, is that once you kind of work through your own feelings and you're looking for a constructive outlet, you know, v- volunteering is something to look at. Get involved politically on a local level or get involved even if it's not politically. Volunteer at a hospice. Volunteer at the ASP- ASPCA. Uh, do something constructive. At, at, find a constructive outlet. I think that is better than just screaming at people in all caps on Twitter. Um, okay, I said a lot there. Hopefully some of it made sense. Uh, let's go to the second call. Hi, Dan. This is Christine in Humboldt County, California. And I was just calling with a question about loving-kindness meditation because I'm finding that sometimes um, it can be a little tough to actually feel the compassionate feelings behind some of the phrases or the good wishes that you're sending out to people, you know, even people you're close with. So sometimes I can feel a little disconnected, you know, or disingenuous. And so I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that or um, experience with it. So I'd love to hear it. Um, I love the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. I do have thoughts. Uh, you should know in advance that these are thoughts that I'm basically stealing from other people, most notably uh, Sharon, the aforementioned Sharon Salzberg, who is uh, probably the premier proponent of um, loving kindness meditation in uh, the United States. So uh, I've struggled with this mightily, and the good news is you don't have to struggle. So just for anybody who um, uh, doesn't know what loving kindness meditation is, I'll just briefly describe it. You it. It's going to sound horrible, and that's fine because it it kind of is sort of annoying at the beginning and can continue to be annoying. But nonetheless, there is evidence that it works. Um, uh, Loving kindness meditation is you envision uh, a series of people. You start with yourself classically, and then you go to a a mentor, benefactor, and then you go to a dear friend, and then you go to uh, a neutral person, somebody you see but often overlook – that a difficult person, sometimes referred to as the enemy, and then you culminate with all beings. You systematically envision these people or beings. It can be like your dear friend could be a, your cat uh, or dog uh, or ostrich or whatever, uh, and you send them, you repeat, you silently repeat in your head a series of phrases. Usually they are, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. Um, and so, yeah, super sappy. Um and uh, I really thought it sounded terrible when I was first uh, exposed to this. However, um, there's a lot of evidence that a um, uh, that this practice can have real health benefits, and that it shows up on the brain scans as well. And b some evidence, although it's early stages, that it can impact um, behavior. So uh, the good news, and, to, and this is where we get to the, the actual answer to your actual question, is that you don't need to feel a certain way. The goal is not to uh, be suffused with feelings of loving kindness, even for people who you really feel it for. The goal is just to do the exercise, to envision them in your mind and to send these phrases. And what you are building is the muscle. That practice builds the muscle of compassion or loving kindness. Friendliness might be another way to say loving kindness, which can seem a little ooey gooey. Um, and and this goes back to the, something that I talk about all the time, which is another thing that you cannot hear enough, which is that these things we want in ourselves, compassion, calm, patience, mindfulness, happiness, whatever, these are all skills. 
And so uh, and, and, and as it turns out that the, these are skills that are susceptible to training. And so that's what we're doing in this practice. You don't need to force yourself to feel a certain way. That's impossible. What you what you do is just over and over make the attempt to care, to send these friendly vibes toward uh, these people that you're meditating on. And uh, the theory is, and again, in my experience, um, it has a, an effect and you may not. And in Sharon's advice is don't look for how you're feeling in the practice as the measure, as the yardstick of whether you're, quote unquote, doing it right. Look for how you show up in the world. As Sharon says, you're not meditating to be a med- better meditator. You're meditating to become a better human. Um, so take that uh, guilt um, that you're feeling about not um, being, you know, experiencing a rush of uh, love and kindness every time you do this practice and uh, discard the guilt and just keep doing the practice. Thank you. Two great questions this week. Um, all right, let's get to our guest. Her name is Allison Wright. She nearly died in a truly horrific bus crash in a remote jungle road in Laos. Uh, she's a, I should have said this first, she is a really accomplished, very talented uh, photojournalist. Her work's been all over the place, National Geographic, Smithsonian, uh, Time, Forbes, O, The New York Times, all over the place. She's been all over the world and done incredible work. And on one of her trips overseas, she was in Laos and she got into this horrific um, bus accident. And uh, she wrote a book about it called uh, Learning to Breathe, One Woman's Journey of Spirit and Survival. And uh, as you might imagine, meditation uh, played a role in uh, what is an incredible uh, recovery. So here she is, Allison Wright. I hear you're in- interested in meditation. I am interested in meditation. I work as a photographer, um, and I was based in Nepal for many years. And uh, while I was there, I got very interested in, um, yeah, mostly I would say in Vipassana meditation, which is sort of this insight meditation. Yeah, I describe mm-hmm. it as old school Buddhist meditation. It's kind of the earliest form of Buddhist meditation, which is, as far as I understand, the predominant, I guess that in Tibetan meditation would be the predominant forms in Nepal. Yeah, that's why I'm sort of clarifying that, because a lot of people, you know, my work is really known for being in Tibet. Um, I've done books on Tibet, on the Dalai Lama, and this is sort of a different, uh, just a different practice than Tibetan Buddhism. What's What would you say is the difference? Well... It's not so much what I'd say, but what they would say is that, you know, there's this, it's a little complicated, but there's Vajrayana, Mahayana, and so they, the people who practice Tibetan Buddhism believe it to be sort of a higher, more evolved um, practice, and it's it's sort of more, um, for me personally, it's more visually oriented in that, you know, there's tankas, these beautiful paintings, there's Buddha statues, and and I love all of that. I have those sort of decorations throughout my whole um, apartment here. But for me personally, what I glean from meditation is really just going within. It's not, there's nothing external for me. I can be anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, sort of what my practice is. And that's what, you know, when you go to Thailand, when you go to Cambodia, Laos, that's more the practice that. Um, you know, the monks and the people that 
that meditate and practice Buddhism are doing that kind of um, that kind of Buddhism. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this, and I, I maybe people may tweet me because I'm being technically or historically or factually inaccurate, but uh, basically I think of Vipassana or insight meditation, which is Theravadan meditation, which is mm-hmm. sort of the earliest form of of Buddhism, as pretty simple and in some cases a little austere. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're just basically watching your breath, and then when you get distracted, you start again. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Buddhism evolved into what you said, Mahayana and Vajrayana, mm-hmm. um, um, it got more elaborate, especially with Vajrayana Tibetan um, practices where mm-hmm. they have these esoteric practices. They, some of them are secret and mm-hmm. uh, can involve elaborate visualizations and uh, ceremonies and rituals and things like that. And for a lot of people, it's incredibly meaningful and powerful. I think there's a significant amount of evidence to suggest it, it's, mm-hmm. it's got real potency, but mm-hmm. it's never been something that I've been personally drawn to yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, it's help, helpful to, for you to sort of set the terms of the discussion. So you started getting interested in, in insight meditation when you were in Nepal. What, why and when? Well, it's interesting. For me, I was actually very drawn to this idea um, really when I was younger, like all through high school, and I didn't even know there was a word for it. You know, like I was reading books about Buddhism, and I was just... I was just sort of really interested in this idea. For for one thing, for some reason, I've always been very obsessed with Tibet. Mm. So I worked, you know, I was working as a photographer. I was on a newspaper and I got an assignment in Nepal and I went for what was supposed to be this three-week assignment. And once I got there, I just fell in love with the place. And um, In Nepal. In Nepal. Not yet Tibet. Not yet Tibet. But the UN, I was working for UNICEF, shooting for them, and they created this assignment for me. And I ended up not leaving for more than four years. Wow. I felt like I'd come home. Like, I just fell in love with Where this Where were you country. from originally? California. And, and San Francisco. Somehow... And I moved to New York about six, seven years ago. And what was it about Nepal that made you feel like you had come home? I don't know. I think we're just drawn to certain places for certain reasons, which is very interesting because I... I love the ocean. I'm such a, I was a surfer and, you know, but I got to Nepal and, you know, there's obviously no ocean there, but it's mountainous. But I fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the work I was doing because I was photographing for the Convention for the Rights of the Child. And my work as a photographer, as a documentary photographer, is photographing indigenous cultures and people and the human condition. I do a lot of post-disaster conflict work. And this was incredibly interesting to me because my job was to photograph children all over Nepal, their rights to health, water, ritual, um, just being kids. And so, um, you know, I did a lot of work with child labor. So I loved the work I was doing. Um, And then there was just a great expat community. It was a great place to live at the time. But what was very interesting is that I realized that there were 120,000 Tibetan refugees living there. So there was actually more of the culture of Tibet living outside of Tibet than in it. Mm. And so on my own time, my own dime, I went all over India from the top to the bottom and all through Nepal photographing all 57 Tibetan settlements just because I was really interested in the culture and what was left of it, because since March 10th, 1959, 
when the Chinese came in and the Dalai Lama left when he was 24 years old, these people have been living in exile. But my fascination was, how does a culture survive without a country? So I was doing hundreds of interviews, thousands of photos, um, just because this was just so interesting that these people were surviving like this. And then I started going into Tibet. And um, it was funny because I've been doing all this work and the Dalai Lama actually contacted me hmm. and he asked. That's an interesting, like via email, did you get an email from the Dalai Lama? How'd that happen? Um, did he text you? DM no. you on Twitter? I, <laughs> I hate to say how long ago this was, but we didn't even have Twitter. Okay. We didn't even have cell phones back then. It was, you know, uh, it was actually through mutual friends that somebody said, oh, the Dalai Lama heard this work that you're doing. This is before he even won the Nobel Peace Prize. So people didn't even really know who he was. Of course, I did, you know, and I was like, oh, how great. Maybe I'll go get a blessing from him or something. So I go to India to Dharamsala to meet him, and I ended up having the whole day with him. He gave me a Tibetan name. He was just so incredible, and he was so genuinely interested in what I'd seen because he was really concerned about what was happening with this new generation, these young Tibetans that were being born in exile. With They didn't even know Tibet because that was, you know, now it's getting to that point. So we ended up developing this really great relationship. Just I was there for six weeks, and I got to really know him. So anytime I'd see him, I'd go to India. He's like, hey, I'm going to go consecrate a Buddhist statue, jump in the car, let's go. And so we developed this really lovely relationship. And um, I sent a picture to my parents saying, look, I met the Dalai Lama. And again, nobody really knew who he was back then. And all my parents knew was that I'd gone for this three-week assignment in Nepal. I didn't come back for years. Then I sent a picture of me with this guy with shaved head, mala beads, and monk robes. And my mom says, oh, my God, Frank, she joined a cult. <laughs> Go over there and get her. <laughs> so my dad came over with my brother to do an intervention. And um, serious, true story. And I'm like, no, Tibet is a culture, not a cult. But I ended up bringing him, my brother, my dad to Tibet and into Tibet itself, it, into Tibet itself and show I wanted them to see like this has become such a big part of my life now, you know, like and um, so anyway, it was funny because my dad totally got into it, turned my brother's room into the Tibet room and bought every little trinket he could find. But but, um, you know, the interesting thing is that he now, I mean, of course, is so ubiquitous and he's in apple commercials and, oh yeah. my gosh he's everywhere so um yeah it's very interesting to see i think it was a really smart move that he went into exile and he's able to do more for his country but but now i've gone oh my gosh years i've been going into tibet for 25 years now you know like really really getting more and more remote um i spent after those years because i was living with these people i ended up getting like Malaria, typhoid, hepatitis, like every disease imaginable. So I had to spend four months in the Tropical Disease Hospital in London. And they said, you can't go back to Asia for at least a year. So I didn't want to waste time. And I didn't want to come back here without health insurance. So I went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, to grad school to do my master's degree in visual anthropology, studying culture through photography and film. I put all this Tibet work together. We opened a wing of the museum there with this and then that became my first book the spirit of tibet this was a long time ago but um and then the next book i did was actually on the dalai lama called a simple monk 
and that was 15 years of traveling with him and our friendship. And, um, you know, now I've done stories for National Geographic and New York Times and on sort of different aspects of the demise of the Tibetan nomad and where, you know, where's this culture going? Um, so it's, it's something that's been really close to my heart to follow and see, um, what, what's happening with the culture. So that was my fascination with it. So then on a personal nature, I got just by the nature of living in Asia, you know, this idea of meditating became much stronger for me. And I started doing retreats, like, because the things that I was seeing, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, but, you know, as a journalist, you see a lot of human suffering, and you start to question, and how how do you deal with that, coming back and forth, and, you know, it was just, it's just challenging, and so that helped me feel more balanced in a way that a kind of it's not like I was looking to be happier. I was just looking to be balanced. And what's really key for me is looking to be aware. Like I want to be so here and so present and so aware. Otherwise you miss the shot. Yeah. And that was like, it just zoned me in. And so I started to um, do these retreats that were three weeks at a time where you, well, let me stop you for one I'm second. Sorry. Why? No, no, no. No, oh, okay. no, no need to apologize. You're doing great. <laughs> okay. um, I'm just curious. Um, why did you you were you were immersed in the Tibetan culture mm-hmm. and and re- getting the word out about this culture and peril and exile, and yet when you when it came time to choose a meditation style, you said, "I'm not going to do Tibetan. I'm going to do this other thing." Why? That's a great question. You know, it's sort of like. You could also ask, I was raised Catholic, you know, I mean, it's like the verbiage didn't resonate with me. I can remember sitting endlessly in church and Sunday school. My brother completely embraced it. I just sat there and I still do. I mean, maybe we shouldn't put that in because I'm going to offend people. But it just it just personally didn't resonate with me. But when I do these retreats, and I've studied with many of the teachers that you list in your book, you know, they, God, I just walked away feeling like there were nuggets that no matter how many times I hear them, it just really resonates with me. So, and, and you're talking about now of insight med- Exactly, exactly. And so when you said you were doing these long retreats, three weeks, where and with who? I was mostly doing them in India um, on this Thai there's a place called Bogaya where Buddha yes. was enlightened, yes. and there's a Thai temple there, and I just had— We should just say, so Bogaya oh, is this yeah. ancient mm. city in India. The Buddha is said to have been enlightened there, and so you have representatives of all the various Buddhist traditions that set up camps. So you have like a, a Burmese place and a Thai place, and all, all they're all kind of there flying the flag. So you— went there and sat with some Thai uh, uh, Theravadan folks? Yes. And I've had different teachers um, that, I mean, there's one particular teacher that, you know, was doing these three-week retreats every year um, in December. And so, you know, just through friends, I just heard about this. And it just, it was funny. It just really worked for me because, I do such intense work in such intense places that it's 
like identification. You know, it's like that doesn't that isn't what grounds me. And I found that this is what truly grounded me. And but it was funny because at one point there was, uh, I don't know, a few maybe a thousand Tibetan lamas had come out to meditate under that Bodhi tree. So I actually snuck out of the retreat to go photograph it. So the teacher saw me there and he goes, Allison, what are you doing? And, you know, I was trying to still adhere to the silence, but he's like, you know, you can't be out photographing. He's like, what are you willing to give up? And he took my cameras every year then, and he would lock them in a box (laughs) and I was not allowed, you know, and it was, it was so interesting because I at first I was really like, wow, I'm not going to give up my job and photography. But he taught me such a great lesson because what he did is he was trying to get me to realize I needed to give up the attachment to it and I needed to give up that identity. And that's what helped me so profoundly because so much of my identity, I mean, I knew since I was 10 years old, I wanted to do this job. I had a little point and shoot camera. You know, my mom's a flight attendant for Pan Am. We traveled all over. And then when I was 15, I had a teacher. I was on the high school yearbook in the school newspaper. And he said, you know, you could actually make a living at doing this. And from the first time I heard that word photojournalist, I said, wow, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. And I never deviated. I went to college for it. I got my photojournalism degree. And I I lived overseas for 10 years doing this. And then, but it became such a part of my identity and it it was interesting because this proved to help me later and um i don't know if you want me to get into yeah, this story well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes it sounds like a good story it's a great story it's a great story because i'm here to tell it much more of our conversation right after this quick break You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. From bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. I indeed 
Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I'm here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and start here. So I had... You know, now I'm back living in Asia. I'd done a number of books. My life is exactly where I wanted it to be. When set us in time? Um, the year 2000. And that's when life throws you a curveball. You know, I was working on another book and I was in Laos and I had just celebrated this amazing New Year's celebration, you know, with friends and I was out photographing the monks collecting alms that morning. It's a beautiful sight in Luang Prabang in Laos. But because I was doing that, I missed my bus. And so I jumped on the next bus, and it was such a life-changing experience. You know, I was on this very precipitous mountain road in Laos, um, and I saw this huge logging truck coming towards us. And we swerved on this corner, and, you know— this is just like a daily thing. You get in these buses and you're always like, whoa, that was close. And so I was actually thinking like, wow, that was close. But as we turned, the logging truck like came right into us and hit us and split the whole bus open. I was right at the point of impact and it slammed into me and it sandwiched me in the seats. I remember waking up really briefly thinking, Oh my God, you know, am I alive? And then I, my first thought was to grab my film and I couldn't move. And I didn't even find this out until later, but the bus had caught fire and everybody had gotten off the bus. And two men came and pulled me off the bus. And this is years later when I heard this, but as the man relayed this story to me, he was crying because he said, I've never seen anybody like that. Like we had to decide if you're going to keep your arm or not, you know, and he, they pulled me off. So the next thing I remember is I wake up on the side of the road and it is like a horrible scene. You know, people around me were killed. They had put sheets over them. Um, people were, you know, just mayhem. And we're in this remote area. There's no healthcare, there's nowhere to go, and nobody would stop because there was guerrilla warfare, people were shooting, and so no one would even stop. And I knew I was in really bad shape. I knew my back was broken because I couldn't move, I couldn't walk, um, and I, I could hardly breathe. And when I looked at my, to see what time it was, my whole arm was like half severed off. And I, ju- yeah, and I just thought, okay, don't go there. And I'm somebody that seriously faints at the sight of blood. Like, I can't even give blood because I'll pass out. So this is a it's I really believe that without this skill, without this tool of being able to meditate, I would not have gotten through this experience because I just was so laser focused. It was like every minute that I've done on that meditation cushion all came to a head for this experience 
because I looked at that and I said, all right, don't go there. Don't go into shock. Do not pass out because you will never get out of this alive. Because I was by myself. I mean, I was with a busload of injured people, but I was on my own. And I asked somebody to go back on the bus and get my film because I'm like, if I'm going to die, I want this, at least some ID on me. And if I live, I definitely want my photos. So it was just like so weird because that was my thought. And then um, these villagers came out after about an hour and dragged me to their village and which must have been excruciatingly painful oh my god it was unbelievable like i i cannot even believe the pain i endured because i had all my ribs on my left side were broken my back was broken my pelvis was shattered my spleen was ruptured my arm was half severed off i mean i had so many broken bones And I didn't even realize the extent of my internal injuries until later. So these villagers, like, they brought me in. I was just like, breathe in, breathe out. Like, that was my whole entire focus. And that's what I, I just, all I, I just thought every breath is going to be my last because I had a pneumothorax. My lungs and my diaphragm are collapsed. So I really thought every breath was going to be my last. And so this kid came in brought me into a cow shed and sewed my arm back up with an upholstery needle and thread. No painkillers, no anesthesia, nothing. And I'm grabbing him by his shirt collar. I'm like, we're in the golden triangle, for God's sake. Give me that opium you're all smoking up here, you know? And he's like, washcloth, you know? I'm like, oh, my God. So um, that was just unbelievable pain to endure. But then they put me in this room and lay me on the straw mat Again, I'm just trying to breathe. I can't even speak at this point. And I I was so moved because the villagers started to come in my room and stay with me. And they said there's at the time there were no phones. There was nowhere to go. There's no health care. There's nothing. And after 10 hours of laying there, I just knew that I wasn't going to get out of the situation alive. It wasn't a resignation. It was just clear that there was there was because they're like, oh, you have to make it through the night. I'm like, I'm not going to live through the night. I know I'm not going to live through the night. So I wrote a note to my family and I told them how and where I died because it was really important to me to let them know that I didn't die alone and I didn't die in fear. And I really felt like this culmination of everything that I practiced. And, you know, these it was like I was so aware of every single moment and I've honestly never felt like really so alive. Uh. And and then I let go and it was so beautiful. I really believe I went to this other side. You know, it was just this complete freedom and letting go and there was no more pain. And um, it just simply wasn't my time. This British aid worker just happened to be driving by. It's, you know, the middle of the night and he he just found my passport and he said, Allison, wake up, wake up. I'm going to get you out of here. And I just said, there's no, there's not time, you know? And he said, okay. And he put me in the back of his pickup truck, like was serrated back, you know? And this this guy, bless his heart, drove me eight hours in the back of this pickup truck. Which must have also been torture. Oh, torture. I mean, we both, we, we didn't think I was going to live, but I thought, at least he's getting my body out of here, you know, and to have a thought like that. Yeah. At least he's getting my body out. of. That's here. what I thought. And he 
he called the American embassy and he said, you've got to meet us at the Lao Friendship Bridge to open this to get us to Thailand. He said, there's absolutely nowhere to go. There's no hospital. There's no health care here in Laos. And you're going to have a dead American on your hands. And, you know, I was listening to the car radio like, OK, you know, but but I really I thought that. And I also had this other amazing thought because I was looking out the window and I just saw, like, there were so many stars. And I just thought, this is the last thing I'm going to see. And it's so beautiful. But I had a um, an interesting experience, not to segue or anything, but I'll tell the end of the how that all turned out. But there was a um, an experience of when I was doing all these interviews with llamas and such. And that's the interesting thing. So many of these llamas are now out of Tibet and they're here teaching, you know, in the, in the West and in India, Nepal. Llamas are basically advanced Tibetan teachers. Exactly. So I I was in Darjeeling and I was with a Tibetan friend and it was Northern pouring India. rain. Thanks. And I went to um, this monastery to meet this this Kalo Rinpoche. He used to be the Dalai Lama's teacher in his last life. He's a very old man. And his caretaker came out and said, I'm really sorry. He's too ill to see you. And I left, you know, disappointed that I didn't get to meet him, photograph him. And sure enough, he died three months later. So this is now years later. I'm in Dharamsala, India, where the Dalai Lama lives. I was at some of his teachings. And this, um, I heard that they had found the reincarnation of this little Kalu Rinpoche. And I thought, oh, I got to go see this. So I went to his room and his mother answered the door and he's just this little monk because, you know, he's reincarnated, but he's still a kid. So he's on the bed and he's playing Game Boy. (laughs) And uh, he looks up and he goes and his mother said, oh, this photographer wants to meet you. And he looked up kind of annoyed because I'd interrupted his game. And he goes, oh, I remember you. You came to see me. It was pouring rain. My caretaker was making momos, these little dumplings. I was too ill to see you then, but I'll see you now. And, you know, there's just been, seriously, I swear. And this was just such a, like, I actually was thinking of the story while I was in the back of the truck because I felt like at that time when I just let go, I really honestly believed that all my beliefs sort of became truths. Like, there's just no verbiage to really describe this. But I really got how connected we are. And, it, like, all of my work, all my my photography and everything is really looking at how are we connected as humans, you know? And um, it just, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. But it just gave me this feeling that something lives on with all of us. Not saying that... You walk down the street and you see your loved one walking down, but it just, I don't know. I just felt like really okay with the fact that I was going to, to die. And, um, so anyway, again, it wasn't my time. I get to this Thai hospital, which is on the border and just one doctor in this hospital. And he said, oh my God, I've never seen this before, which is really not what you want to hear your doctor say shows me this x-ray, and he said, your heart has been literally torn out. He goes, I don't know how you just survived for 17 hours. Your spleen is ruptured. He said, people die from this. And like right then I flatlined, and this guy just got me in, brought me back. So I woke up. I was three weeks in intensive care in this hospital in Thailand. And by then, friends had flown in. My family had flown in and because they they didn't still didn't think I was going to make it. And 
the pain at that point, you know, was just off the charts because... But didn't they have meds in the ICU? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was on a morphine drip. And yeah. I mean, it's just there's, you know, you just, it's just when you're that damaged, it's really hard to get comfortable. And it's really interesting because each one takes a certain hierarchy. You yeah. know, you're like, oh, my God, a fractured pelvis. And then you... It's not even until later you start feeling like, oh, yeah, that spinal fracture. And, you know, and then, uh, you know, just it was tough. It was really tough. So here I was finally medevaced back to San Francisco where I'm from and was given the very grim prognosis that I'd probably never walk again. And, um, you know, here I was an avid scuba diver, kayaker, done Everest Base Camp twice, photojournalist, um, and I was bedridden. I was bedridden for months on a morphine drip staring at a ceiling. And uh, I had more than 30 surgeries. And I remember this doctor coming in saying, you better think about what you want to do with your life now because you're never going to work as a photographer again. You're probably never going to walk properly again. And I I said, really? Because I, I plan on climbing Mount Kilimanjaro for my birthday next year. And I didn't even know where that came from because I didn't even know anything about Kilimanjaro. But I just... I don't know. I just got focused on that. And it was kind of like an F you to this guy, you know, and he um, I saw that I needed to become my own advocate. So I got rid of all these doctors that I was working with and I got new physical therapists and I came in and this I can't remember if I was on crutches or wheelchair at this point, but saying, you know, to this physical therapist, tell me what I can do, not what I can't do. And I got off these crazy drugs, these, you know, that they put you on. And I just brought my, you know, alternative healing into it. You know, cranial sacrum, acupuncture, meditation was huge. Like, as much as I was dealing with the pain, at least it reminded me that I was alive. And I rode with that. And, you know, it was really amazing because they had me on, you know, morphine percocet vicodin and i and i just i knew that i had to get strength of mind for strength of body and it was just really worked for me you know it was really hard and really challenging but i worked so hard if i wasn't crying at the end of physical therapy i wasn't working hard enough and so you dropped the meds started to feel the pain yeah and just went for it in physical therapy so yeah, yeah. So when I couldn't photograph, I wrote about this experience and I wrote this, you know, the article for Outside Magazine that really took off and um, it just kind of went all over. It's like their most read article at the time. And so um, it took me a year and a half and 30 surgeries, but I finally got back out kayaking again. I went to Glacier Bay and I Were was... Were you walking kind, by this point? Kind of, but... I was like, I was all about like, what can I use? At least I could get my upper body strength going. Like I would work, like the the hard thing for this is I kept having a surgery, then I'd get sort of better from that, then I'd have another surgery and I'd have to like, you know, it wasn't like all at once. Did so, you skip the pain meds after surgery? Um, Or would you wean yourself quickly? N for me, it was quickly, but I believe... It depends because once I had another surgery, then if I needed it, I really believe in Western medicine along with what I was doing. And and I had had an, a lot of experience with Tibetan 
medicine, you know, where they feel your pulse. And I had had, I'd had a whole slew of illnesses before, you know, malaria, hepatitis, typhoid, dengue fever. Um, and, you know, it was, again, kind of more prep work, I think, for getting through this, you know. But um, so I'd had some experience with that. But then um, it was just, uh, it was amazing because two years after the accident, I got to the top of Kilimanjaro, Whoa. which was really huge. You know, it was walking. really walking and carrying camera equipment. And it, how did that happen? Just through PT or uh, physical therapy? And what, what, what was the main, because the doctor told you you weren't going to be able to do this. So what happened? And I, I don't understand that. I feel like there's something in our medical care that maybe they want to cover themselves or, you know, they don't get a lot of hope. And I found people within the system that had to believe in me, you know, that really, um, How'd you do that? Just by shopping around? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because I didn't have a lot of experience. I had never broken a bone before. You know, I didn't have a lot of experience with this, but I was also in an HMO in California that I think people feel like once you're given this doctor, you're wedded to them. And I'm like, no, you know, even if you're in the same hospital, even if you're next door, I want somebody that has a different mindset. I had a very, you know, I had some very negative people working with me. And then I found incredibly positive people that, you know, when I came in, even my physical therapist said, wow, it's people like you that make me want to be a physical therapist because, you know, I'm like, let's do this. Work me harder. You know, let's tell me what I can do, not what I can't do. And it was just, it was awesome. I would get back to kayak. I remember the first time I went skiing again, um, but what was interesting with Kilimanjaro is that I felt like I'd had my, that to me proved I had my strength back, but I still didn't have my mind back. And I still had this sort of post-traumatic stress about being on a bus. And and also a lot of people had responded to this, to these, to this article and the writing I was doing, like telling me these horrible stories that had happened to them, which really hurt my heart because it sort of made me like afraid to go back out there in a way. And so, um, again, that was, you know, I was really dependent on, you know, meditating in my practice. And um, it was so interesting to work through pain and what were the colors of pain and how was what do you it mean by that colors of pain? You know, I would meditate like when the pain is so bad, it's really interesting. You know, it was like trying to work into the center of it and ha- trying to this idea of, extricating it from your body or looking at, you know, there's certain viewpoints of like you look at the colors of what it is and um, it doesn't feel so personal anymore. Yeah. You become less attached. It was just a very interesting, it was interesting. So then what I needed to do was to kind of get my mind back. And so sounds like you had your mind with all this meditation. Well, what I needed to do, and this was really interesting for me, is to, um, and it's not for everybody, but I needed to get back on that bus. Uh, well, so, it, well, in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, they would call this exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. So you got to go back and, and... And I knew that's what I needed to do because I kept reliving this whole negative experience yes, yeah. over and over and over through dreams and nightmares. And so I went back. Um, what was really cool is I had this assignment in Thailand. It was kayaking in southern Thailand. So 
it brought me back and I went back to visit the doctor that had saved my life because when I had this herniated heart and I flatlined, this guy just went in and he like held my heart in his hand, like actually brought me back. And so I got to this hospital to thank him and it was a very emotional Oh my gosh, like to thank him and to be there. And, and he looked at me and he goes, you're so short. He said, I had no idea you were so small because I'd been like bedridden. And here I was <laughs> like walking. And um, so we laughed about that. But my next stop was to go up. Oh my God. And this guy was so cool. Like when I was in Thailand, like the initial after the accident and I couldn't walk and I was bedridden. He said, is there anything you want to do before you're medevaced out of here? Because I don't think that you're ever going to come back. He knew much I loved Asia, you know, and he said, I don't think you're going to come back here. And um, and that was heartbreaking, but I was so out of it, you know. But I said, I really want to go to a monastery. I really wanted to just, I don't know, give thanks. I was filled with such immense gratitude. It was really interesting. It was hard for me to break out of this. And it wasn't just the drugs. It was really like this... Once you've had, like, dipped your toe into feeling your own mortality to that extent, it was so intense. Like, all of this seems so peripheral and seems so trite, you know, when you've had such an incredibly profound experience. And so he he was so amazing. He arranged for this ambulance, and these guys carried me into a monastery in Thailand can you believe that? Wow. These doctors wouldn't even send an ambulance to pick me up at the hospital at the airport when I was medevaced back. You know, so the healthcare and the attentiveness to what they pay attention to in a place like Asia was really interesting to me. Um, and and that's where I feel like I just wish we had more of that in our medical system. So um, uh, Did you, and you went back and got on the bus and lost? So, oh, yeah. So I go back to the village and I'm standing there, like, feeling very emotional, like, because there's nothing there. It's just sort of like this cow shed, and whatever. And the villagers are all looking at me like, what's her problem? And so I show them the picture of, you know, my arm with like hundreds of stitches in. And they all, like, their face lit up and then they realized who I was and they all started weeping. Like, the all the villagers started coming out and they couldn't believe I was alive. They couldn't believe I was walking. And then they pushed this guy in front, and he was the kid who sewed my arm back on. Wow. And it was so emotional. You know, I was like, oh, Kap Chai Lala, you know, like, thank you so much. And we we're crying. And I said, I'm going to do something for you. And so um, I had been asked by different agents here in New York to, they had, oh, they read my story because when I climbed Killy, uh, people had read the outside article. And so it was really cool because people were there cheering me on like, oh, I read your story. I read your story, even though I was doing this alone. And that was really heartening. And then the the editor was so great. He was so supportive. He had me write a follow up article. And I felt like those articles were very sort of this high testosterone, like, oh, I survived this, like the angle. And for me, now that I processed this, I felt like there was a much deeper more spiritual aspect to it as well. And so when these agents were calling saying, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I was like, I'm out shooting. I'm finally getting back out there. I don't want to write a book. But then I got this great agent here and I wrote, I ended up um, writing a, um, a pretty lengthy proposal and I thought it was a really back burner project. And so I handed it to my agent here and then I went off to Antarctica for six weeks 
And he said, call me before you get on that ship. So I remember calling him from Tierra del Fuego and he's like, oh, we have a bidding war going, you know, like, who do you want to who do you want to go with? And so I was on this ship and I um, I did the ship to shore call and he said, OK, who do you want to go with? And um, I said, I'm I'm in the middle of Antarctica. All I can see are penguins outside of the porthole. So I said, I think we have to go with penguins. So that's who <laughs> that's who published my book. And I did it on that basis because I was like. Ah, the signs are all around. But but what was great is this this book turned into like What's the name of the book? It's called Learning to Breathe, mm-hmm. One Woman's Journey of Spirit and Survival. And it's um really it's a love letter to all these people that saved my life, you know. Oh, that, so when you said to the folks in Laos, I'm gonna do something for you, that's what you meant. No, I wanted to do something else for them, but um I wanted to do something bigger i i so i wrote this book and i and i showed them the book but what i did is it inspired me to start a nonprofit, and the nonprofit is called faces of hope faces of org, and it i just wanted to give back to the communities that i photograph in i felt like all my work is about trying to help other people and tell their stories and hope that somebody sees the images and, you know, maybe wants to do something to help make a difference. But then I thought, why not me? And what this is, is I go around the country and I speak. And, and if I was doing this book tour, I didn't want to just show pictures to get people riled up. I wanted to give them a place where they actually could help. And so my nonprofit helps women and children in crisis through education and healthcare. And the first thing I did was bring five American doctors and $10,000 worth of medical supplies to this little village so other people didn't have to die in this area, you know. And it was important for me to bring the doctors to sort of help show them what to do and maybe and maybe not use an upholstery needle. Right, right, right. <laughs> it must have been amazing for you to go back to this place of so much pain and suffering for you and just to show up reasonably, I guess, healthy and with a bunch of doctors and helping the people who helped you, that must have been a big moment. Well, what was really, yeah, it was really big and it was so beautiful because they have this thing called a bossy ceremony where they'll tie a white string around your wrist, you know, to show this connection. It's a very Vipassana thing, but, um, or Buddhist thing. And they, the whole village came out. Like I had like, so many strings on my arm and it was so beautiful and yet so sad to me because I my next part of my journey was to go and and find Alan Guy the man who had driven me because this man didn't have to do that he you know when I was laying there and they this kid was sewing my arm back on a woman from the German embassy had been behind the bus and she came in and I was like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I need oxygen. And she's like, oh, you can't breathe just because you're afraid. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm like dying eviscerated by the side of the road. And and she left. She just left me there to die because she didn't want blood in her car. And yet this man found me and he drove me eight hours in the back of his pickup truck. You know, so every day I think, seriously, I do think this. What kindness what I do for a stranger, mm-hmm. what kindness would you do? You know, this guy went so out of his way and we did keep in touch and his son was killed on that same road, oh. hit by a drunk driver on a motorcycle. 
So as I came with these doctors and this journey, I was going to continue on to Vincien because I heard he and his wife, his Loatian wife that lived there, and I was so excited to meet them. And, and Vaughn, his wife, met me, and I'm like, where's Alan? He had been hit and killed on that same road, and I never got to see him again. Whoa. And the last line of the book says, Alan, if you're out there, find me. I owe you a beer because we had said, like, when I'm in the truck, I'm like, if I ever get out of this, I'm buying you a beer, you know? And um, Yeah, and I think why, you know, why did I survive? He didn't, his son didn't, and he was doing great things there. You know, he worked there detonating landmines, and it's... um. That's painful for me that I didn't get to see him again. But, you know, I love his wife and it was really beautiful to see her and thank her. She was in the car, you know, at the time, too. So, you know, these people literally saved my oh, life. She was in the car when they were driving you. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's just it's life. And so what's interesting is I got on this bus and one of the greatest... You got back on the same I, bus. I literally got back on the bus, leaving this village, because that was key for me. You know, once I said goodbye to the villagers, I needed to get back on this bus because I wanted to confront that fear. And one of my big takeaways with all this meditation is that, you know, somebody just asked me this, like, you don't seem to feel a lot of fear. And I had to think about it for a minute, and I'm like, I don't. You know, I'm in some really crazy, hairy situations, and I've had some really close calls, but I tend to not really feel fear because what I've really come to terms with through this meditation is that fear is just a thought. It's really just a thought because if you're having this fear of what could happen or the unknown, it just let it go. Notice it and let it go. I mean, if you're lying, dying, eviscerated by the side of the road, that's a good reason to feel fear. But when I got back on the bus, I really didn't feel it, you know. And then the interesting thing is we actually clipped another bus as we were coming around the corner. Everybody screamed. And I thought, wow, this is so, you know, I can't believe I'm living this again. And yet nothing happened. And the girl said to me next to me said, wow, that was so close. And I'm like, you have no idea, <laughs> you know, like. It, that's what's incredible. It's like one second can change your life or not. It sounds like they need to shut this road down. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a, it's such a dangerous road. But I've been back on it since. They have fixed some of the potholes, but it's a very precipitous mountain road. I mean, and there's like very little, it's very curvy. There's very little room for passing. And it's it's also interesting in Laos for some reason and this is what happened with us, they tend to not honk their horn. Like in India, they're constantly honking, and there's a reason for that. Yeah, they're letting like you know, yeah. like, they're coming around the corner, and our guy didn't do that. Um, How's your body now? It's good. You know, I mean, I, I have a very high bar. I just got back from South Sudan the day before yesterday. I mean, I'm constantly on the road. I'm traveling all the time and carrying all my equipment. Um and I'm at the gym every day. I mean, you know, I'm doing great. There's certain things that, you know, I still have pain with. But again, I do have a high bar about what I want to be doing. I'm not at a desk job. So, um, yeah, I'm just so happy I'm doing, back doing what I love. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's amazing. I feel really 
Really blessed about that. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely, there's just always challenges, you know. I mean, it's, uh, but, you know, it's 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 hard. There's different hard things. There's the physical hard. But I think, you know, there's so many challenging things. I mean, I just came back from covering like a million South Sudanese refugees, you know, and that's. That's heartbreaking. Um, I covered the Royanga, you know, a, a couple months ago, and I just, I had a really hard time pulling out of that. You know, sometimes you just, like, look at this human suffering and go, what are we doing to ourselves, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I just came out with a new book, um, a photo book called Human Tribe, and it's really looking at, after being now to 150 countries, you know, how different we might look, but really how much we're the same the world over. And, you know, we all want to love and be loved. We all want a little money in our pocket enough to get by. We want safety and health for ourselves, our friends, our family, education for our children. I mean, it's really not that that different or that difficult. We make it difficult, you know, but it's Everywhere I go, it's really the same, you know, and it's just this idea of wanting to celebrate our diversity and, you know, how beautiful we all are. And that's, for me, what I feel like now my purpose in being coming back here is just to continue with this kind of work of really, you know, trying to say, it. you know, at the end of this road, I think there's that we're going to get how connected we are, you know, that we need to get past this. Do you think it'll make a difference? Because we've been killing and raping and, and, and maiming each other since, you know, we descended from apes. I know. I, I totally agree with that. I, that's where I feel like there's, yeah, I just feel like there's something that continues on that for whatever reason, we're living through that experience here and now in this in this realm, but I just think that there's there's something else that there's a core of something that goes on that's so, not. So you're not sure necessarily that humanity is going to get its act together, but that that there's something beyond what we're experiencing now. Is your point? That's what I personally feel. Yes, I do feel that there's there's something evolutionizing here that we might not necessarily seeing this, we're probably all going to end up in some tar pit, like <laughs> with those dinosaurs. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I just think that there's something more to all this. I mean, there's just things that have come across my path that have made me believe that. Um, I want to give you a chance to, because you mentioned a bunch of your books, but let's consolidate it and put it all in one place. I, I call this the plug zone. I like to let, let people plug to their heart's delight. So, like, Thanks. give us all the books and then where we can find you on online. Okay. Um, my books are all on Amazon or at your local bookstore, which I love to support. Um, my latest book is called Human Tribe. Uh, my memoir is called Learning to Breathe, One Woman's Journey of Spirit and Survival. Uh, my nonprofit is facesofhope.org. And my website is www.allisonwright.com. And, and you mentioned a few earlier books, too. Tibet. Yeah, yeah. Those, um, The Spirit of Tibet, um, A Simple Monk, The Dalai Lama, I did a book on children around the world called Faces of Hope. 
Um, I have a big color coffee table book, um, face-to-face, Porch of the Human Spirit, um, and uh, the other two that I mentioned. And I've done three travel books for National Geographic, you know, but China, London, Great Britain. Um, So, yeah, I think that's sort of where all this has brought me, but I always wish I was better at this, you know? At what? Uh, you know, meditating and going deeper and, you <laughs> Sounds know. Sounds like you were able to apply <laughs> all the stuff that the rest of us are doing is like, it's kind of like academic, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I'm, you know, I might be less prone to temper tantrums because I meditate, which is important. I'm not downplaying that, mm-hmm. but I haven't had my body mangled mm-hmm. in a bus crash in Tibet with no medical care, that is where the rubber quite literally hits the road. Yeah. So I don't know what you're talking about when you say you wish you were better at meditation. Yeah. You're walking quite literally example of how meditation can be useful in the most extreme mm-hmm. environment. So yeah. thank, thank you for doing this. really oh, appreciate it. It's a pleasure you. to meet you. Yeah, you too. I really do appreciate the, the time. And it was uh, really, um, I loved your book. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. it. It was, it was uh, I love that you took it in context of um, kind of like, this isn't my thing, but, you know, <laughs> and and that's, I think that's just really important, you know, like how do we, how do we reach other people that are just, you know, trying to get through the day because everybody has their own logging truck, you know, like I have my story and people are like, Oh, whoa, yeah, but you got hit by a logging truck. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Every day people have a logging truck, you know? And, and even with some of the things I go through and people say, Oh God, well you've, you know, gone through so much. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? An ingrown toenail still can hurt. You know, it's just, it's all perspective. You know, people's pain is people's pain. That's exactly right. And in a universe where, we're all born to die, and everybody you know is going to go away, and you are going to go away. We're all going to be dealing with logging trucks. <laughs> and so your life might have been relatively seamless thus far, ingo- ingrown <laughs> toenails notwithstanding, uh, you know, that we need to prepare ourselves for life's up and down, mm-hmm. ups and downs. So, yeah, well, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. 
once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.